scripture reading this morning, Genesis 24. It's good to see you all. I would mention this morning, something was just told me a few moments ago, that if you haven't heard, Jan Weatherhead passed away this morning, for those of you who know her and her family. And so uh, keep them in your prayers. That's all we know at this point. But uh, keep the family in your prayers, if you would, please. Also, our family campout's coming up in a little over a month, in uh, August 18th. The brochures are on the back table. If you want to see the schedule, come to stay with us. Come for the day. Come enjoy a good time of fellowship around God's word together. Uh, keep that weekend open, if you would. Okay, Genesis chapter 24. We're just going to look at the end of the chapter here for our scripture reading. Let's start with verse 62. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Laharoi, for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel, for she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done, then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Well, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful today for your word. Father, thank you that you have given us a book in which we can understand uh, you and, and life. We can understand ourselves. And Father, and in, in your word, you reveal to us the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, your only son who came to be a man so that he might die for man. We're thankful that when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, that he died for all sins, for all time. Father, in your great love, you laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Father, what a wonderful gift of love that was. And thank you, Father, that in your power he rose from the dead. He is a living Savior. He is victorious over hell and the grave and sin. And Father, we're thankful that we can partake of that through faith in Christ. Thank you that sins can be forgiven, that heaven can be assured. And Father, today we rejoice in that. We worship you for that. And we're so thankful today and every day for the salvation you have provided for us, the rescue that you provided us from eternal hell and the glorious future we have to look forward to in heaven above. And Father, in the meantime, you have given us your word to instruct us in the way that we should go. Your word is a, a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And Father, we pray that you would direct this morning as we open your word, you would give us understanding. Father, help us to, to understand the things that you would teach us this morning so that we might know you better, that we might love you more, and that we might serve you more consistently. And so, Father, we're thankful for each one who's here today, and we pray for those who are not, that you'd watch over them. Pray for those who have needs, Father, this morning, that they would look to you and that you would comfort, that you would strengthen, that you would encourage, that you would lift up. And we pray especially this morning for the family of John Weatherhead, Father, that you'd watch over them and comfort them at this time of their loss as well. And so, Father, we're thankful for the adults that are here, the children that are downstairs, and we pray that as your word is taught today, that you might be understood and glorified. And, Father, that we might take the things we learn out these doors, and they, they might find application and use in our life. And we give you the thanks. Be our teacher and guide now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in our scripture in this morning, in Genesis chapter 24, we find the account of a bride for Isaac. And we're going to return to the book of Genesis. We've been away from it for a while. We had looked at the, at the person of Abraham previously and left off here in this chapter. And Abraham was a significant character in Scripture, isn't he? We not only find him historically in the Old Testament, 
but we find him mentioned throughout the New Testament as an example of faith. And what is really significant about Abraham is the covenant promise that God made to him. We saw that. We're introduced to Abraham in, in the text, in the context of the covenant that God made with him, the promise that God would, would give him a land, would, would, would produce through him a seed, and through him would come a blessing. God promised him a land in which his, his people would dwell forever. God promised him a nation, that a family would rise from him, actually nations, and he promised through Abraham a blessing. And the New Testament tells us that that blessing promise was fulfilled in the person of Christ. It is the Jewish family, it is Abraham's family that, that provided for us the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And that is the blessing that Abraham brought to the whole world, that he, his family produced the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And that's the reason the Bible follows this family in history. Because you have to wonder, that isn't there, wasn't there a lot more going on in the Old Testament than just the Jewish nation? And we see glimpses into this nation and that nation. But the reason God follows the nation of Abraham, the, 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 the Jewish nation, Israel, is because it is through him he brought the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through them he intended to be represented to the world because that's why he chose the Jews. He chose them to represent him, to not only to come to know him themselves, but then to represent him to the world around him and it eventually provide the Messiah, the Savior. And that's because man's greatest need is for salvation, isn't it? And we begin, we begin the book of Genesis with a perfect creation. God created the heavens and the earth and saw that it was very good, but that creation was soon spoiled and soiled because of sin. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, the Bible tells us sin entered the world. And now we're born sinners in, on a path separated from God. <clears throat> Just like in the garden, when God had clothed them with animal skins, and in order to clothe them with animal skins, some animals had to lose his life, God introduced the idea of substitution, the innocent dying for the guilty. And just as God found Adam and Eve guilty in the garden, hiding from God, separated from God because of their disobedience from God, God clothed them with the skins of an animal, picturing for us the idea of substitution today, that Jesus was our substitute that he went on, went on the cross to take our sins so that we might now be clothed in his righteousness. And that's the story of the Bible. That's what God is up to, and that's why the account follows Abraham and his family. In fact, that's why it's important to even to study the person of Isaac because God told Abraham that in Isaac your seed shall be called. That seed promise would be fulfilled through Isaac and his family as it's passed down through from Abraham to Isaac to the patriarch, patriarchs and on. Now, another aspect of Abraham, as I mentioned, is he's seen in the Bible as a man of faith. In fact, he's held up before us as an example to be emulated. This is what a godly man should look like. This is how a godly family should operate. He is a man of faith. And we see, we see his faith in Abraham's account in leaving his home for the promised land. I mean, he had a comfortable home. Uh, back east, and he left for the promised land, not sure where he was going or what was going to happen, but we see his faith in following God's call. We see his faith in the birth of Isaac, the miracle baby, that was born well beyond childbearing years, and yet God gave him a child, and in Romans 4, we're told that Abraham staggered not through the prom promise of God through unbelief. He, he knew God could provide, even despite of the impossibility physically. We see Abraham's faith in his willingness to offer up his son, and so on. And in this account, we see one of the last activities of Abraham that's recorded for us in the Bible. This, this account, this detailed account of 
getting a bride for his son. And in this account, we, what we really see is a culture of faith in his family and in, in Abraham's and the people who surrounded Abraham. We see some details in their life that are the expressions of faith in the various aspects of this endeavor. So we're going to look at those this morning. We're going to hold Abraham up as an example as we transition to Isaac and see these, these characteristics of what a faith culture looks like. Because God calls us to walk by faith. You know, the Bible sets forth two types of ways to walk. To walk by sight, which is self-dependence, which is living life without God. And when that happens, life doesn't always turn out so good. Or we can live life with God by faith as we trust Him, as we trust His Word, and trust God to lead us in our daily lives. And, and so we see that faith expressed here, the, this culture of faith that characterized Abraham in his life. And we see it here in chapter 24 in Abraham. We see it in his servant he sent to fetch the bride. And we see it in Isaac himself. And so let's read this account. Let's go back to verse 1 of chapter 24. We kind of read the end of the story when, you know, when Rebecca came to meet Isaac. But let's begin in verse 1. Now Abraham was old and well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman who will not be willing to follow me to this land, must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath, only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hands under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed. For all his master's goods were in his hand. And he rose and went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman... To whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking that, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold. A virgin, no man had known her, and she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, Drink, my lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew it for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. 
So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel, two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels of gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please. Is a room here in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. Then the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth towards my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother, mother's household these things. Now let's pause there. <clears throat> now obviously the culture then was different than it is now. Your fathers would pick a bride for their wives, and you ladies may be sitting out there thinking, I'm sure glad my father didn't have a hand in any of this. But that was a culture then, wasn't it? And, and what we see here, first of all, in Abraham's efforts while he was still alive to find a bride for Isaac, the consideration of God's will. He was going to seek God's will. In verses 1, one through 4, we see him saying that you're going to go back to my country, to my family, to pick a bride. You're not going to take one of the Canaanites. And in this passage, what the Canaanites represent is the pagans. They were an ungodly nation. They, were, they did not know the Lord. They were not godly people. And Abraham's family would represent those who knew the Lord, those who may have been godly. And it pictures for us what, what God expects of us today, because in 2 Corinthians 6.14, God tells his children to be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It is God's expressed will in the scripture that a, if you're a believer, that you would marry an unbeliever. That's God's design, and it goes on to tell us why. He see in 2 Corinthians 6, because what communion has light with darkness and what fellowship has he that believes with an infidel and so on. And the issue is, for a believer, one who knows Christ as a Savior, in, in, in contrast to those who do not, we march to a different drumbeat. You know, the believer considers the Bible and, and considers the Lord in his life, and the unbeliever does not know that. They have different values and different motives. And so God instructs us to marry a believer, and that's Abraham's desire here. He says, we're not going to take a wife from the, from the ladies of Canaan, although they may have been very beautiful and very worldly and very appealing, and no doubt how tempting it would have been for Isaac. But God says, we're, but Abraham says, we're going to find a godly bride. And that should be the norm for the children of God. That's part of the culture of faith, to use the Bible as a basis of, of decision-making. You know, too often we seek God's guidance only when his will agrees with ours. That's kind of the easy time it is to seek God's will. Maybe God will agree with me instead of the other way around. God, what do you have to say? And that's really the approach of faith, approach of one believer who is dependent upon God for direction and saying, God, what would you have me to do? Because we understand that as independent sinners, you know, we have this tendency in our flesh to always move in the wrong direction. That we often rebel against God's way and it often gets us in, the tr in trouble. And so we have to as believers make a decision. We're going to trust the Lord. We're going to seek God's will in our life. And, and that's the culture that Abraham had established. It's a simple concept. Is my family life governed by the Bible? Is that the basis of wisdom and decision? Do I honor it in everything? Not just when I like it, but in everything. You know, I remember a time years ago when it hit me as a young believer when I would see believers search the Bible for wisdom when they're trying to make a decision. Seek the light of God's word to lighten their path in their lives. 
And so first thing we see in this godly culture is this respect of God's word and God's will and God's ways. And there's a deliberate decision here of Abraham to move in that direction. The next thing we see as you get to verse 5 is this idea of this in verse 5 through 8, he says, you're not going to take my son's son Abraham, Isaac back there. And he says, because God has called us here. This is the land where, to where we belong. This is God's calling to us. You're not going to bring my son back there and have, it, and, and have him just get comfortable and settle back in the town of Nahor. And what Abraham was doing was being faithful to his calling. God had called him out of his family to a nation to represent him. And he was to father a new nation. He was to dwell in the land of promise. He was to provide a seed. And that seed was going to be continued through Isaac. And it was important that Isaac continued in God's calling. In fact, God repeats this calling to Isaac himself. And, and it's much like God's called us today. God's called his children to represent him. He's called us out of the world. 2 Corinthians 6, that same passage actually that talks about an unequal yoke, Verse 17 says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate. Well, who is them? Come out from among them. It is from the unsaved. It's from the ungodly. And it's not, God's not calling the believer to isolate himself. He's simply calling him to live for him. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you, and I'll be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Abraham wanted to be faithful to his calling. He wanted to be faithful to what God had, had called him to do, what God's will for him was, and that's much like our calling today. And a person of faith recognizes that. God's called us to be sanctified or separated to the Lord. We're here for his glory. You know, oftentimes we think that we're as, we as Christians are here on vacation and forget that we're here on a mission. Because someday this earth is going to pass away. God's going to create a new heavens and new earth. Someday we're going to be in glory. And in glory we find our rest. We find our, our, our joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have a mission. And that's to represent him. And God's called us to be separate. And a godly family, a godly culture, is one committed to living godly lives, maintaining their godly ad identity. Ephesians 5.8 says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That means no compromise with the world. That's what that means. No turning back, as the song says. And verse 6 tells us that there is a tendency to compromise with, with biblical standards. Do not take my son back there. You know, for the believer, there is strength, spiritual strength and fortitude in, in realizing and living one's identity. And the Christian's identity is that we are in Christ and he is in us. It's a union that we have. See, when you trust Christ as your Savior, not only are your sins forgiven, but you become a Christian. And Jesus Christ comes to dwell within. And, and, and Jesus describes it as he being us and us in him. Christ lives in me. We have God as our Heavenly Father. We have heaven as our actual and eternal and real home. And, and thus it's, it's an identity we're to embrace while we're here. We don't wait to live heavenly until we get to heaven. We are God's heavenly people here, and that is our identity. And when the church wants to embrace the identity of the world, when it compromises, it becomes weak and ineffective in its witness. And so one of the aspects of the culture of faith that Abraham sets before us here is this commitment to live our calling, live his calling before the Lord. 
Well, and then as we move on in verse 9, we find here then that the servant commits his promise to Abraham, and in verse 10, he departs. He departs. Well, he's, it wasn't a lot of detail given here in this direction given to his servant. He just gave him a destination and said, go find someone. A lot of uncertainty in this adventure. And yet, the servant stepped out by faith, believing God was going to direct. Because in verse 7, Abraham mentions that the God, the God of heaven had told him that you're going to find a son among my family. You're going to find one there. And so he steps out by faith. You know, it's a faith, faith is, a, is an obedience towards God that entrusts the uncertain future to him because in reality, none of us really know the future. We can sometimes have an idea of what might happen, but every day is an adventure. Every day is an uncertainty. And when God calls us here, in this case, God called this servant as a servant of Isaac, his, his oldest servant, his maybe most faithful servant, to step off by faith to, to fulfill this commitment to Abraham. And he's going to step out and trust the Lord with the details. And that's the important aspect that we often miss in our lives. As Christians who know the Lord, we can trust the Lord in everything because God's concerned about our details. You know, he has the hairs of our head numbers. He knows our yesterdays and todays. In fact, he knew us in the womb when we were conceived. And he formed us. He knew us before we knew ourselves. And he cares about us. He's proven that love at the cross when God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he continues to love us and providing for us and caring for us. And the servant knew God would direct his path. He was going to trust the Lord with the uncertain details of life. He had a rough plan, as we've seen. He was going to go to the city. And, you know, as the plan may have developed along the way, okay, I'm going to go to the well and good place to meet the ladies, you know, at the well. And, and yet God had to fill in the details. I think so often we miss the Lord in the details of our lives. We fail to see that he is sovereign over our lives and he cares for us. We fail to see him working in our lives. And even in our actions and attitudes, we, we aren't always considering him, including him, looking to him, trusting him. Are we doing the right thing in light of God's word? You know, in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, which mentions Abraham, it tells us that when, when he left his home to go to this land of promise, he had no idea where he was going. God says, I'm, I'm going to show you. You know, he didn't have YouTube, you know, couldn't look it over, Google Earth. You know, he didn't look at, get to look up realtor to see what the home sold for. And any of that stuff, see what the schools are like, quality of life, crime rate, none of that stuff. God said, go. And he went. It's uncertain. In fact, it tells us in Hebrews 11, he didn't know where he was going. But he trusted God with the details of life. And that's often what life is like as we walk with the Lord. In fact, in the end of the chapter, it summarizes a lot of people of faith. And he says, they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. But the reason they went is because they had a promise, we're told in Hebrews 11. God promised them a glorious future, a land, a seed, and a blessing. And that was their hope. And so it is for the Christian. Today, as Christians, we live with hope. Now, they never received the fulfillment of that. In fact, some of the things God promised are yet to be fulfilled to them, but God will fulfill them. But they lived in light of that hope as they served God where he called them as he led one step at a time along the way. And that's how Christians are to live when we live with hope. Because hope in the Bible is not, un, is not an unsure hope. 
it is a sure hope even amid, amid uncertainty in life. Because the assurance of our hope is the promise of God. That's why it's a sure hope, because God cannot lie. He's always faithful. He never fails us. And so we live with hope. And for the believer, our hope is anchored in Jesus Christ. Because God's promised us, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Those are promises of God that we hope. That's a sure hope. We expect to come to pass. And someday, whether by death or by rapture, we'll realize that hope when we're with the Lord. We have promises of a glorious future where there's no more crying and sorrow and, and so on. That's part of our hope. We hope to see the Lord Jesus come in the rapture. He's called the blessed hope. These are sure things that are going to happen, and we live in light of those things because we, that causes us, when we live in light of that hope, to live in light of the life God has for us here. We live, in, we live with hope in God's word. Because when we follow God's word, it produces for us a safe and stable life for ourselves and our descendants. So we expect God's word to work because God promises it will. When God promises to strengthen us and uphold us, when God gives us direction in our life, we, life works. In fact, that's one reason why people often refer to the foundations of our nation as having been built upon a Judeo-Christian ethic. What that really means is it's built upon the Bible. And the Bible works. And when it's honored, it works. When it's dishonored, it doesn't work. And guess what's happening today? It's being dishonored. You see, that's how it is in life. We live with that hope, the expectation that when we follow the Bible and its guidelines in our lives, we'll have fulfillment of life, we'll have fullness of joy, we'll have meaning and purpose and so on. And that hope, though we may not realize every aspect of our hope here, but someday it will be fulfilled in glory. When we live with that hope, when we're willing to step up by faith in what God has for us in our lives, trusting him in the details, walking by faith, it'll keep us on track as we trust him in obedient faith. The fourth thing you see here, then to pick it up in verse 12, is as his plan continues, he prays in verse 12. He said, that he said, O oh Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success, and so on. And he, and he kind of casts this veil out, this test out, in regards to the picture and water and so on. But he prays. One of the aspects of the culture of faith is this fellowship with God in prayer. And I'm not talking just about formal prayer, though that's important. It's talking about relational prayer. And this is a beautiful picture in how easily this prayer rolled off the lips of this servant. He was comfortable with God. And that's the beauty of this. He knew God. He knew he could talk to him. He knew he could come to him. This wasn't just a fleeting prayer that, well, maybe God will hear it. I might be sitting here for a few weeks before God's, God gets around to answering it. No, he knew God was present with him. This was not a mealtime, bedtime, quickie prayer. This, flo this flowed from the heart of a man who knew the Lord, who talked life over with him. And that's the kind of relationship God wants with us, uh, this, this, relation, this relationship expressed in prayer. Because God speaks to us through his word. We relate to him in prayer. And we're told in Hebrews 4 to come boldly before the throne of grace. Come boldly. We come boldly because Jesus made the way. He died for us so that we could come into the presence of God. But we come before him that we might find grace and mercy to help in time of need. We come to him. We cry in his shoulder. We bring our requests to him. And this is the kind of fellowship God wants with us, to be comfortable, to talk life over with him. It's an expression of faith because faith is not only believing God is, is right, but it's depending on him. 
in life. It's depending on his direction, his wisdom, his strength, his power. And so it's no different than talking to someone sitting next to us, isn't it? This is just life lived in a moment in a life of communion with God. And that should be normal for the believer. It's part of the culture of faith to include the Lord in our decisions and our attitudes as we look to him in faith. Prayer should be a normal expression of the life of faith as it was here. Well, Abraham gets his answer in verses, excuse me, the servant gets his answer in verses 15 through 20. He watches it all happen. You know, the water's drawn for him. She waters his camels for him. And he's thinking, boy, God's answering my prayer. My circumstances are lining up. The stars, people today say the stars are in line, but that's, that's it's just as a service to the fact that God is answering his prayer. And then we come to verse 21. When he said, the after, after this is water's all drawn, the man wondering at her remains silent. So that's in the weather. He remains silent. That's interesting, isn't it? Everything is happening just as he asked. It's kind of amazing. This is what I prayed, and this is what happened. But then he sits still, and he wonders. And he waits on the Lord, because there was one more question to ask yet. And he's waiting on the Lord. And, you know, oftentimes when we seek the Lord in prayer, it's too often as God bless my plans. And if things remotely seem to line up with anything that might be right, it's the way we go. God tells us to be still and know that he is God. Even when Israel was being chased by Egypt, when they left Egypt and the armies of Egypt pursued them and they're trapped at the Red Sea, Moses told them, of all things, stand still. Stand still. What he, what, what he said next, that counted. And see the salvation of the Lord that he's going to show you today. You see, waiting on the Lord is, a, is an attitude of faith, which is hard to do because we don't like to wait. Especially when everything's lining up as it was here in this account of the servant. But there's one more question to be answered, asked here in verse 23, and he asks it. One more piece of the puzzle. And he said, whose daughter are you? And tell me, please, is a room in your father's house for us to lodge? Now, why is that important? Because remember... He was sent to his family because he wanted his son to marry a believer, marry a godly woman. So one more thing. Though all the circumstances, she was beautiful. She was a looker. Maybe that's why Abraham told him not to take Isaac because maybe he'd never leave. The circumstances of his, of his prayer requests were answered. But the most important question is, is she saved? Is she a believer? As we put it today, is she a believer? Does she know Christ as her Savior? shocking in this account wouldn't have been she says no i'm a i'm a foreigner and it would just in the eyes of the servant it would have ended the consideration even though the stars are lining up and everything was in line everything looked good and you know she's a polite she's a servant's heart she's a wonderful gal she watered all my camels if she wasn't a believer it would have ended this discussion wouldn't it and so sometimes we have to recognize that our flesh tends to run quickly in the wrong direction and we, do, we need to wait on the Lord. And when we do so, I will to take no for an answer. 
and yet on the other hand, are willing to take yes and then step out by faith in what God has answered when he answers our prayers. A godly family waits on the Lord and have it has an unquestioned dependence and commitment to God's word, and thus says the Lord. So then we come to the sixth thing in verse 26. After he got the answer that the, the last piece of the puzzle fit, it says the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. He acknowledged God. Now, where many of us may have, you know, when we get something we want, you know, we jump up and down, belly bump, we scream, yell, holler, we're happy, you know, do a happy dance. We get what we want. We sometimes we forget the Lord. But he recognized right away that every good gift and perfect gift is from above. See, that's this culture of faith that sees God in every detail of life. And he bowed his head and worshiped. And that should be the immediate normal response of believers. And maybe he's just saying thank you. Maybe that's what the worship is because thankfulness is closely related to worship. Thankfulness is an oft-repeated theme in scriptures. And it's a recognition of the work of Almighty God in our lives. Ephesians 5, 19 through 20 says this, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Making melody in your heart is, a, is an aspect of worship, isn't it? It's a reflection on God's loving faithfulness because he's faithful to his children. You know, sometimes we have problems that we think just have no answers. We're hopeless in life. But God has the answers. There's hope in God. It starts with salvation. It starts becoming a child of God and then transitions into enjoying our Father as our Heavenly Father who fathers us through life. And as we see him begin to work, we're to be thankful and make melody to, uh, to others, which uh, make melody to the Lord, which spills over to others. Now, the next verses, which we haven't read, I'm not going to read for sake of time this morning, is the servant goes to the home, and then he, re then he repeats everything we just read to her family. And then in verses 50 to 53, we get Laban's response to her, I mean, to the account. He recognizes that it's God's will. He says, definitely God is at work. This is God's will. And he, he offers to cooperate with God's will. Take Rebecca. And then in verse 53, I mean, we see this. He says, then the servant brought out jewelry, jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold, clothing, and gave them to Rebecca. He also gave precious things to her brother and her mother. And he and, he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning and he said, send me away to my master. But her mother and brother said, let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten, that she may go. And he said to them, do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered in my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. And so on. You know, you can't blame the family. This is kind of a shocking thing. In a matter of hours, you know, they had their little girl, you know, helping around the home and helping in the kitchen and, you know, doing her chores and with them. And all of a sudden, within a matter of hours, the servant shows up and, and uh, they recognize God has called her to be the wife of Isaac. And he says, well, you know, can she stay for a little bit? Maybe 10 days? It's not unreasonable, isn't it? Some might have said the servant should have capitulated and, you know, been compassionate and gave in. But he didn't, did he? He said, no, we're leaving. And 
maybe he recognized the fact that if they lingered, lollygagged around, it might have allowed some parents and daughter to consider the cost, to have second thoughts. And in this, we recognize that there's often in our lives distractions that keep us from moving forward for Christ. Isn't there? Luke 9.62 says, Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the Paul looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, even in Israel, when they left Egypt, even though they had been in horrific slavery and abuse, when they, when they got in a, in a mode of complaining, poochy lip, in, in the wanderings of the Israel, they said, oh, they longed for the leeks and garlics of Egypt. Well, how often did they even have those? I mean, they forgot the bad stuff. They looked back. And God says, don't look back. When God calls you to something, it's time to move forward because the enemy is a master at creating distractions that would keep us from the perfect will of God. And some of those may seem legitimate, but the questions we have to ask ourselves, is this the perfect will of God in our lives? You see, God gives us richly all things to enjoy in life, possessions, experiences, family, and so on. But the, one of the issues we face in life is that we often worship the gift rather than the giver. And the, the gift that God gives us, the things he gives to enjoy, becomes the object of worship rather than God himself. And God wants us to view those things and, and use those things in ways that will glorify him and honor him. And he wants us to enjoy them to the fullest, but as from his hand with an attitude of thankfulness. And when we find ourselves making excuses for our decisions, we have to step back in prayer and evaluate, am I convicted? Am I doing my will rather than God's will? Because that's often where those decisions come. They come in moral and upright decisions. Well, what's God's perfect will for me? What's God's calling? Nothing wrong with staying for 10 days at all. But this servant was going to be faithful to his call, was going to move forward and step out in God's will and, and go. You know, you may have heard stories from time to time of those who are called to the mission field often after a period of time retract. Uh, sometimes it's because family gets in the way. Family says, starts repeating to them the cost, the generation. What about the kids? What about your finances? What about your retirement? What about the harsh conditions, the disease, and hospitals? And on and on we go. And we count the cost. You know, most of us would hide under the bed. But here, and I think the servant knew that, if the cost was considered. Instead, he moved out by faith. Distractions can be varied, and they can be many. And may God give us a grace to be determined to consistently pursue his best for us. The last thing we see was in our scripture reading here, number eight, in our observations, is his Isaac here in verse 63 went out to meditate. Interesting, isn't it? And I don't know, it doesn't tell us whether he was anticipating the, uh, his bride to come over the hill any moment. It doesn't tell us that. He simply went out to the hill to meditate. And then here's a young man that was taking time out for the Lord. I'm sure his schedule was busy, just like everyone else's. He had a business to run, animals to take care of, and he took time to go out and meditate in the evening. Today we call it Bible time, devotions with our family. And a culture of faith is one that makes the Word of God and time in the Lord and time with the Lord a priority. So much so that whatever Isaac saw in his dad rubbed off on him that he took time as a young man to spend with the Lord and to meditate on the word. And it's something we're told to do throughout scripture, to meditate on the word. 
Joshua 1.8, remember that promise, that encouragement to Joshua, this book of the law, the Bible, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Prosperity and success, spiritual prosperity and success, were dependent on a meditation on the word. Because if we don't fill our minds with God's ways, God's word, God's truth, the enemy will gladly fill it with, any, with something else to discourage us, to distract us. Remember the, the uh, happy man? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 77, 12, I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Psalm 119, verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. Verse 27, make me to understand the way of your precepts, so I shall meditate on your wonderful works. Verse 48, my hands also I will lift up to your commandments which I will meditate on your statutes. on we go 145.5 I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty you know these simple things some really simple concepts that we have observed from this text from the culture of faith that Abraham had established with his servant, with his servants, and with his family. And yet there's those simple things that we often neglect, simple things that we realize aren't real in our lives. Seeking God's will, that awesome respect for God's word that takes a determination, not just the, you know, occasional glance consideration. Faithfulness to God's calling. Are we a people separated to our God? Am I, says, sanctified to my God in my daily life. Stepping out by faith, do I trust God in every little detail in my life? Do I have a close and comfortable relationship with God in prayer? Am I, am I willing to wait on the Lord, trusting Him to say yes, no, maybe, or wait sometimes, He says. Am I willing to wait on Him because His will is best for me? Worship and thankfulness and recognition of God's faithful working in our lives. A determination to accomplish God's will in, in leaping over the hurdles of distraction in order to remain faithful and on track for the Lord. Spending time with the Lord, getting to know Him. You know, much of our life is to be motivated, our lives are to be motivated by love, the love of God. And we love Him because He first loved us, but we don't know how He loved us unless we get in the Word, unless we spend time with Him, make time to know our God. These, these eight marks here are marks of a godly family, a godly culture, as seen as Abraham, the person God sets before us. And our prayer ought to be that God would make these things real in our lives as well. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you that you are a faithful God and you're a patient God. And Father, you seek to develop each one of us in our walk of faith. Help us to see most of all that you are a God who is faithful. You are a God who is able. You keep your promises. Your word is true. It always works and, de and delivers the promised blessing in our lives. And may we trust you in the simplicity of all this of faith. May we just trust you. First of all, trust you as Savior in dying for our sins, and then trust you as our Father and as our God as you guide us through life and help us to navigate the challenges we face. Thank you, Father, that you are an almighty God, yet you are a God who is involved with our lives personally. So use these things now for your glory in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name.